Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. All right, it is the eve of opening day of bow season, and we are at episode 32 of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. I'm the co-host, Locke. I'm here with host Kyler Moppert, and our guest today is Glenn Peterson. And as always, we want to take a minute to say thanks to Gator Coolers, sponsors of this episode. And I want to give a cool little testimonial for Gator. Um, As you heard on the podcast last week, I was able to kill a deer in Missouri during the early season. And I have the 70-quart Gator with that has the wheels and I had taken that up there with me I was able to quarter and debone and do everything the way you're supposed to do it for transport and get all of that packed into my gator and get it all the way back to Louisiana 14 hour drive and then when I got home I have two little boys and we had school activities and football practice and it was actually two days before I was able to get that meat out and finish cleaning it up and getting it packaged and it was still iced over it was frozen solid like I said the wheels on that 70 quart, that 70 quart holding a full size Midwest buck, you know, broken down and uh, everything about it. it is a great product. Check them out at Gator Coolers. That's G A T R coolers.com. And we just want to say thanks again for their support of our podcast. Kyler, we're going to talk about when this airs, we're doing, uh, most of us are doing our get ready to hunt, or maybe you just made your first hunt, but this is going to be an opening day drop of this podcast. So we're going to talk about opening day some of the things that we're going to be doing and we have done in the past and just kind of our strategies for picking a spot for that first hunt absolutely it's going to be a good one man we had glenn on last season and um we were talking about i think the the name of that episode was bow hunting rifle land which is um how to effectively hunt a primarily rifle lease 
Um, we learn a lot from you on that one. Kind of seems, if I remember correctly, you're kind of skirting around the uh, the the box stands and the food plots and things like that, and hunting in the gray of the uh, of that lease with your family. Is that right, Glenn? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And so correct. you know, you've been bow hunting. I, it, now, if I remember, isn't this your 25th or 30th year bow of bow only, no gun? Yeah, this I'm somewhere around 25 or 26 years of bow only. I haven't haven't shot a deer with a gun in a long, long time. And uh, I was just telling a buddy of mine on the phone, a younger guy that actually works with me. Uh, he, we were talking about getting sleep, and I said, "Man, I didn't sleep worth a darn last night." <laughs> he's like, "I didn't either." He's all pumped up. You know, he's a young guy and got him a new bow, and he's he's ready to go. And uh, I said, "I said, you think it's, it's uh, you know, getting ready for deer season? Just can't sleep and." Uh, he said, that's what it is for me. So I guess I got the same thing. I've been bow hunting now for, I'm 52. And I started when I was 12. So do the math on that. It's a long yeah. time. And I'm still giddy as a, as a school kid, you know, just yeah. fired up about bow season. I'm pumped about it too, man. I, uh, well, somebody we do it. Yeah, it is why we do it. You know, Donovan Wiley said uh, on his episode last, I think it was he was episode twenty seven. He said, "Man, the minute that I stop getting shaken up by a deer is the minute I'll stop going bow hunting." Um, and yep. uh, he's right on point on that because, you know, it's I, I I guess if you had to think about it, um, you know, what specifically it is that gets us shaken up, like it's not the weapon. I think it's more of um, you know, every year we get to face some of the most formidable opponents of the woods and taking one with the bow is the ultimate victory. And so, um, I think, uh, I think being able to prove that we have the skills to outsmart an animal in its own home, hopefully often, um, is, uh, I think that's the reason why it gets us so pumped up because, I mean, I, I feel the same way about duck season, but then it fades because then that just turns into work and then the season turns to crap and, and, uh, that, then you start I going out of, and then you start going out of principle, um, alone on bad weather days, just because you're not working. Um, and, uh, but bow season, man, opening day, it's going to be, oh, 95 93 degrees <laughs> record high yeah some of the hottest like if maybe the hottest opening day i can remember i heard on the radio they were talking about their tuesday and wednesday of this week are potential record setting highs mm. Since mm. like 89 or something like that. there's been um the past three weeks there's been some meteorologists from like the south like i say i think one was out of houston and one was out of like atlanta or Birmingham or something and they keep posting this same I think it's bullshit I think it's just an attention grabbing picture it's like yeah we could be down in the 50s next week if everything pans out and then like here it is it's 95 degrees you know I think they're just posting that just to get likes and follows because I I, you know when you're when your job is to be right only 50% of the time you can get away with that you know um but it's going to be hot. Well, I'd, be a, I'd be a rich man if I could get away without my job. Yeah, no kidding. God, imagine if you could only, you know, fix an AC half the time, right? Yeah. Or hey, install man. it correctly 50% of the time and, like, that was okay <laughs> and still get paid, you know. Okay. So, I think you're fixed. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be good. I looked yeah. at it from a couple of feet I, away. You think you did? Yeah. It was okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, yeah, I just imagine. I can't think of any other profession in which like a a, a batting five hundred is acceptable. You know. Yeah. So. Um, you know, you were talking about the bow hunting thing, Kyle. Just to mention, I think, I think part of it that I've learned over the years of bow hunting, primarily or, or exclusively for a while now, is it's the intimacy of it. Because the more you bow hunt, you start to realize it's not just as simple as the fact that the deer is close to you. It's also this kind of idea that the more experiences you have, you start to realize how many little things can go wrong. And mm-hmm. when that deer starts approaching, your experience experiences start to take over and you start to notice all the little things. And you're really anxious and on edge of all the little things that you know might go wrong. And, and then, uh, uh, like as you said, when they all come together and you execute it right, it's just such a high. It that is. intimacy of the whole thing is such a high. And there's so many little things that you you know, even though it might feel like and look like, let's say it was on camera or, or somebody was watching you, it might seem like it just went over smooth. But in your mind, you know that the whole time you stood there while that deer was approaching, there were a million little things that could have went wrong. Well, you remember, for you to be able to actually kill that deer with a bow. You know, in the in the um, the movie Moneyball, Brad Pitt goes, how can you not be romantic about baseball? You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing with bow hunting and, and, you know, this might not sound like the manliest, most macho thing to say, but bow hunting is a very intimate, romantic sport because of how like deeply physically and also emotionally involved we are in the whole process. You know, this is not a game of chance. There are deer that I have killed on accident. You know, where like I just totally got lucky, but I can't even count them on one full hand. The other 20 or deer or so that I've shot have been deliberate acts of, of, of positioning and um, placement of myself or my stand or reading the wind, weather, and the deer. And it's, I mean, how can you not be romantic about that? You know what I mean? That is, it's some of the most, some of the most impassioned thing that I, I can think of doing is going bow hunting. We're intentionally going mm-hmm. hunting in a more difficult way, in a manner that has proven to be less productive, but has also been proven to be more rewarding. That's bow hunting, you know? So how can yep. you not be romantic yep. about baseball, you know? I'm a firm yeah. believer in the, you make your own luck. Yes. You know, that, that's, it's. You can say what you want. You know, people say, you know, you're just lucky. Yeah, sometimes you are. But you make your own luck. You yep. know, persistence is, is where, you know, uh, yep. and that, that's where it pays off. Absolutely. I agree. I, somebody made the comment to me last week, and I've heard this said a lot of ways, but they, the way they said it was fortune favors the prepared. Yeah. Yeah, and very good. It's, it's very true. I mean, I you know, I even get tired of hearing it, you know, when somebody kills a deer or if I kill a deer and somebody, man, you're the luckiest dude. I'm like, man, I've worked pretty hard. I mean, yeah, there was some luck involved in, in it all coming together, but I mean, give me a little bit of credit, man. Well, I mean, like you said, there's pretty hard for that. that can go wrong. So many things that can go wrong when that deer is coming in there. I mean, you know, you're fighting the wind, you know, them, them picking you off, you know, seeing you, yeah. you got to make the shot yeah. and then you got to follow the blood trail. You got, you got, you know, make a good shot. Uh, there are so many things that tie into it that can go wrong, you know, um, yeah. that to me, like you said earlier, that's, that's what, you know, gets my boat floating is, is, uh, you know, all those things when they do come together, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I, know, my biggest maturation as a hunter 
from a teenager that was fortunate enough to grow up hunting right next to Glenn's place <laughs> in Adams Franklin <laughs> yep. County and learning how to hunt with a bunch of old men that ran dogs and shot rifles and, and, and being a passionate bow hunter and then growing up. The My biggest maturation was just learning to break the mold of just simply going and doing everything by chance. Well, let me just throw a dart at the map and decide, I know there's deer over there. Maybe this is right. I know the wind's going to be okay for that spot. And actually picking my spots and doing my homework and hunting differently, hunting the right places at the right time. The, I mean, whatever all that entails is the biggest change over whatever amount of years of me as a hunter. I mean, it, no doubt, because it's, you know, chance or fortune favors the prepared. And, you know, fortune favors the guy that's sitting on the right food plot in the right afternoon. That, that happens, too. But it, it, you know, it favors the prepared. Well, yep. you've got uh, you've got the people that say that, you know, the cliche comment, you can't kill them from the couch. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've, I, the stats and I'm, I'm no Warren Womack, but I've got some old stats of mine that I've, I guess I've memorized because I've since stopped taking them because I didn't like them very much. But, um, I had statistics from about three or four years ago where I was making, if you counted all my morning and evening hunts, I was hunting, um, probably, about 60 to 75 hunts a year. Okay. And that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. lot. I mean, I was hunting close to the house. I was able to pop up in a stand, climb down by eight 30 and go to work, you know, pop back up at five o'clock, you know, before daylight savings time, all that stuff. And so, you know, you got to admit, you got to look at it. I mean, if I'm hunting 20 days out of October, that's a pretty good pace. If you average that out the rest of the, the other five months of the season, um, <clears throat> but I was seeing a deer one in four hunts. I was seeing, like, putting my eyes on a deer, whether that be through binoculars 200 yards away or within bow range. And I was killing a deer one in 10 hunts. So I was seeing a deer 25% of the time, and I was killing a deer 10% of the time. And when you think of it in terms of that, like in the aggregate of like, you take your total number of attempts divided by how many deer you killed, which is, you know, how that number is factored as, you know, um, your kill your success ratio. Um, I had a 10% success rate and, um, that just so happens to correlate with this, you know, sales, uh, jargon, which is called the 10% rule. It's also called the law of large numbers, which is the same rule. I, I like to use the analogy of the guy that gets drunk and hits on every girl at the bar and gets called an asshole by 75 of them and then goes home with somebody at the end of the night. I mean, if you eventually, if you d- never stop, <laughs> you'll eventually <laughs> succeed. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's the law of large numbers in which no matter how many attempts you have, there will eventually be some percentage of success, whether that's 0.5, 1, or 10%, there will eventually be some percentage of success. And, um, you know, I don't really like to think of my bow season in terms of, okay, I'm going to make 58 hunts this year, I'm only going to kill five deer, and it's going to be give me a an average of, I don't know, 12% success rate or something like that. Um, I, and I think everybody, 
we like to think on a one-to-one ratio, one-to-one scale. Like, okay, I have, I have a hunt coming up tomorrow, opening day. This is what I'm doing for this hunt. I'm preparing for tomorrow. I'm preparing for this afternoon. I'm preparing for this Saturday. And so, but when you think of it in the aggregate like that, it kind of rem- removes that romanticism from it, right? It removes that fantasy. Yeah. It remove you know, it, it strips it of of the the um I don't know the the potentiality of of your season is if you if you go into the woods saying, well, there's only a ten percent chance I'll kill something today. That's not as much fun anymore. If you always go in wide eyed and and ignorant at the fact that you might kill something every time, even though nothing never happens. Um, then, uh, you know, it can, when you remove that, it makes it a little less romantic, you know? Um, well, I think you, you tunnel, you, you focus in everything on the kill. And I, I mean, I know that when it comes down to it, that's, you know, we're all out there to, to kill a deer, but if you're going to be a bow hunter, you got to, uh, I think both of you are going to agree with this statement. You, you got to chalk up a certain amount of your time in the woods to learning and figuring it out to get you to the place where you're going to eventually be successful you know, um, oh, yeah. as much scouting and prep as you do time in the stand observation and learning. And so I guess, you know, talking, <clears throat> listening to those numbers and the way you broke that down, I mean, we don't want to do it that way. And I, and for me, I think if I, if I tried to do it that way, it would, it would take too much focus off all the other things I get out of being a bow hunter aside from just how many deer I kill, mm-hmm. you know, because if I'm only killing a deer 10 or 12% of my hunts, and that's all it is. Well, that's not very good. But if I'm seeing deer, if I'm experiencing something that I can take with me on another hunt in the future, if, you know, I'm whatever I'm learning and enjoying and getting out of it, well, you factor that in and all of a sudden, you know, what, 50, 60 percent of your time spent in the woods is valuable all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. You know, well, you know, another thing, though, that that to kind of add to that statistic is um, I never until two years ago. I hunted this property for five years. The first three years, I never, ever, ever killed a deer in November at all. The entire season. I mean, sorry, the entire month. And I never killed a deer before December 20th. So that is a, that is 50 days. That is November 1st to December 20th is 50 days. That's 50 days that I I stopped hunting it. Like I stopped hunting there. I went and hunted other places, but I never killed a deer on that property between that time frame. They just, I mean, it was like they were abducted by aliens and I would never get a chance at them again until, until the, the rut would push them around. And so, you know, half of those attempts from the year, if I made 60 hunts and 20 of those, 25 of them, or, or maybe even 30 might be in that, that window where I said I'd never killed anything. Well, if I, if I stopped hunting that window, like, let's say I stopped hunting, that, that was the only property I was hunting wasn't hunting anywhere else. If I just stopped cut hunting that property entirely and I knew after my third year, hey, I'm not going to kill anything in this window. I'm not it's not even worth going. Nothing moves, nothing eats anything, nothing eats any corn. I, you know, I cannot find a deer to save my life. Well, then that would cut my percentage in I mean, double my percentage on view on um, sightings and killings. You know what I mean? I would jump up to a 50% sighting ratio and I would jump up to a 20% kill ratio. You know, yeah. so, uh, but anyway, kind of got it off track. What, um, we're going to talk about today is tomorrow's plan. And, and I'm just going to go ahead and push this into the future right now because 
I'm going to edit this tonight. We're kind of last minute on this because Locke got lost yesterday. We were supposed to do this on Sunday night. <laughs> Locke got lost in the what woods. Happens, yeah. By himself. No flashlight. He got lost. No, I'm just kidding. He misses. What, your sister missed your turn or something like that? Yeah. T- she missed her turn and we went way, yeah. So we just went way off nowhere. And, yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, we're recording this on Monday night. So both season opens tomorrow. Or, as you're listening now, it's opening in a, an hour <laughs> or two. Uh, <laughs> and, we're, you know, this episode, I'm going to push into the future and say, like, we're, I'm going to talk about it. In, like, hopefully the people listening are driving to their stands or I think the majority of people listening today might have to be doing it from their desk or from the office. Um, and uh, and that's disappointing, but not unreasonable since a season opens on a Tuesday. But, Glenn, we're excited to talk to you again. Appreciate you coming on a second time. And we want to know what's your plan for tomorrow, man. Where where are you hunting? What's what's the first place you're going to? <clears throat> okay, well <clears throat> tomorrow I'm I'm a I'm gonna hunt multi states. I'm gonna start out here at the house. I've got a place. I I, <clears throat> I have a love hate relationship with trail cameras. You know they're they're great, uh, but <clears throat> but then again they 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 push you. You know, in other words, where I'm going in the morning, I have a within walking distance of my house there's a river and a big pasture and there's a a section of timber in between the river and a pasture where it falls way down and i've had success there through the years put a trail camera there uh about a month ago on the main trail that runs right down the middle of this this pinch i call it and i've been getting a really really nice mature buck on it he's coming through there right at the crop of daylight nice uh maybe once a week you know, most of the time it's it's before daylight, uh, but he is daylighting here and there. So I am hoping to, to get in there really, really early tomorrow morning and uh, probably two hours before first light and hope I don't bump him on the way in and take a chance on him coming through there, you know. And there's other deer, too. There's one other buck I got on camera back that I'd probably shoot. Uh but, uh, so that's my plan for tomorrow morning. And then I got to go to Mississippi to my dad's place tomorrow and actually meet a man at noon to work on a tractor. And after that, while I'm there, I might as well make a hunt. Might as well. <laughs> might as well. That's my uh, anyway, to my wife and, and dad, who's my boss. Uh-huh. And, uh, so anyway, I have several bucks up there on camera and uh, my, my older son is coming with me also tomorrow afternoon. And I, and I got him set up on a on a really good buck he's been really really consistent uh daylighting almost every evening him and several other bucks so i'm hoping uh he just got off his honeymoon he just got home this morning matter of fact he's been in jamaica so i'm uh hoping to give him an early wedding gift and put him on a really nice buck yeah i hope he gets him and uh if the wind stays like it is he should he should get a crack at him if he doesn't wind him or see him or miss him or Jack shot up or whatever, he's got a pretty good chance of getting a crack at him. So uh, hopefully that'll happen. And then I got a, uh, you know, I've got places that I've, I've been trying something the last couple of years, and it seems to be working. Uh, I've been taking, like, if you get a final cluster of some good red oaks or water oaks or something like that, <clears throat> that produce acorns pretty good. If you're going there and fertilize them, I don't know if you ever heard of this or not. Go to the canopy of the of the of the oak tree and, and fertilize it. Put put these uh, these things you can drive in the ground. It's like uh, a piece of hardened fertilizer, I call it. Uh-huh. 
and it, and it's shaped kind of like a wedge and you drive it into the, into the ground and you go around the canopy and man, <clears throat> I'm telling you, it works. Really? The uh, acorns fall earlier. They're full. Uh, and, uh, I also got mineral sites in, in these areas also. And, and I got some, some pretty good bucks on camera that I'm hoping to, to run across, you know, uh, tomorrow evening. So, uh, that's my strategy. Um, that, that, uh, fertilizing those trees. I, I had a man tell me to do that years and years ago. And I, I've always had it back in my mind about three years ago. I started, started doing it. and It's pretty good payoff. So, it, um, works. it works. My buddy, David, well, Locke knows him, David Delucci. He does that on his yeah, property. He, does that. Um, does he? Okay. he, he takes, uh, he take he hand throws fertilizer out, um, and he does it. I don't know. I can't remember if he does it on the trees, but I know for a fact that he does it on um, like briar patches and he does uh, and browse. He does. he does the trees too. I, I, yeah, well, no, the briar because I shot a I shot at a doe on his place um, years back, probably five years ago, and we were trailing her and. Um, we were going through a briar patch and we were having this, it's just kind of random that you brought that up. We were having this conversation. He was like, this was, we were in there and he was checking it out. He's like, I fertilized all these briars right here. And he was, as we were looking for blood, he was checking his fertilized brows. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've heard, yeah, look, this is everything in the hunting world. One person be like, Oh, this works. And the other person like, you're an idiot. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and so I, you know, I've, I've, heard that it works i've heard like just people just like you just said like i did this and it worked great and blah 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 and then you've got the the other side which is like oh this was studied and it proves to do nothing you just happened to catch it on a uh a bumper crop year and it was going to do that anyway um and so i don't know i think it's an interesting concept i think in theory it sounds really awesome um but uh i guess you know a tree is a huge organism Right. It's big. It's a hell of a lot bigger than a tomato plant. And um, and it would take, a, I, I would imagine, a lot, a lot to kick that tree into like a hyperdrive mode compared to what it would take. Theoretically, that's that's the argument. Because yeah. Because you said that and I, I've heard this. And so my thing is, you know, I've heard too many people just like Glenn just said that have they didn't just try it once and get lucky and happen to hit the right tree and then and you know kind of a placebo effect it, it wasn't that i mean they've done it year after year after year and the proven results of not just success out of a stand but just what they've observed with the trail cameras and their scouting of of what these trees and and natural uh food is doing but then i've read the what i've read the the the, the studies and, and commentaries it was exactly what you just said that there's scientifically a tree specifically a large mass producing oak tree would require exponentially more fertilizer than we're putting out and and thinking that it's doing something but but what do you i mean is it like the bigfoot thing like how many people have seen the bigfoot (laughs) and then you know but i know that's kind of a a stupid analogy but i mean i've had it it, it may be more psychological in my mind but i can tell you well it's not i mean it's physical it's it's uh they prefer those trees over the rest. That's start, cool. Well, my thing is this. It's, is, early, it's early for red oaks to be dropping right now. And they yeah, are, well, that's the thing not, is if you're talking to somebody. Out, they're dropping pretty heavy, you know. If you're talking and, to somebody uh, like Glenn who's been hunting his family property, you know, for however many years that that he's been hunting these same oak trees 
and he is physically seeing a difference in not only deer sightings hitting the trees, but the amount of food that's hitting the ground. I mean, you can't ignore that. You know, you yeah. can try to wash well, it away hundreds, with science, but you can't Literally ignore hundreds it. of other oak trees and on this ridge, okay? But the four that I fertilized, which are in a clump, you know, all pretty much all of them within a bow range of, of the of the stand, the lock on that I've had there for ten years. Um, that's where the sign is. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. it, it, yeah. it, it's there. Uh, that's pretty. So neat, the proof's man. in the pudding, you know. I, but you look, you can't just put you know a couple of little bit of fertilizer out and expect. I, I put a lot out. Yeah. <laughs> you can also yeah. dig holes. You take a shovel and dig holes in the earth and, and then, you know, and dump your fertilizer into that and then cover it back up. That works also. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's I've a, heard a that. pretty neat. Uh, I think it's a cool concept. I mean, I, I'm not saying it works or doesn't work, but I think like, like Locke said, if, if you have, if you have done it repeatedly and seen increased results repeatedly, um, and you're local down here in our ecosystem and our you know, temp- tempered climate and all of that stuff that trumps, in my opinion, any article written by QDMA about Kentucky, you know, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. doing fertilizing uh, oaks up in New York state or something like that. You know, um, I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's, I don't know of a study that's been done this far South like that. I, I don't know. But um, anyway, it's a cool concept. I, 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 I guess all in all, I, I hope it works. Like, like I, I would like to think that works. I think that would be an awesome thing to, to, to do. And at the same time, I also don't think there's any downside to it. You know, I don't think you're scaring anything off. I don't think you're hurting yourself, um, with the deer. Um, and I don't think you're hurting the tree either. So even like hypothetically, even if it doesn't work, who cares? If it you doesn't know? work, yeah. all you're doing is losing a couple hundred dollars worth of fertilizer. Exactly. And you have some really, <laughs> really thick briars around it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you well, know, we were talking about that, lock when you were talking about the fertilizing the briars. If you've ever noticed around food plots, in other words, when you plant your food plots, you scatter oh, yeah. your seed and your fertilizer. Some people do it separately. We do. We normally mix ours all in one big hopper and spread it like that because we have so many food plots. The briars around the edge of our, of our food plots are so lush. And the deer just love them. You can yeah, see yeah. that you can you can see the the line of where your you know your your hopper slung the fertilizer out into briars and the browse on the edge of the food plots. It's just more lush, you yeah. know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the deer love it. It's so, got more, you know, it's more protein, uh, what have you, you know. So, mm-hmm. Glenn, do y'all have do y'all have an east wind for your morning and evening hunt tomorrow? Is that what y'all are projecting? Where you yeah, are? Yeah, I'm 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 counting on a southeast. wind. Is what I'm counting on. Okay. Uh, tomorrow morning, where I'm going, if I have anything out of the north at all, I can't hunt it. Okay. If the deer comes from where he's been coming from, uh, there's a really, really big uh, pine plantation where he's going in there to, I'm assuming he's going in there to bed. Uh, anything else, I can't hunt it. I got to I got to have something out of the south or uh, a straight east wind would be perfect, but. I can have a little bit of south, and I, I should be able to get away with it. Now, uh, where where you're hunting on your property, are these stands they're preset? Or do you keep them up year round, or you hang them every year? Some of them I take down. Look, I'm guilty of, of not taking them down when I should. Uh, 
I've got lock on that's been in, been in trees for 10 years, you know, and they've grown into the tree. Now, this is family property, okay? I'm not on, on, on a lease or anything yeah. like that. Uh, so it's my own tree that I'm ruining. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I restrap them. Let me tell you about a little experience last year that happened to me. Matter of fact, it was the next morning after I did the podcast with you last year. Oh, so man. I get up in a lock on that's been in a tree for about three or four years. I almost always put some of my stands. I got four or five ratchet straps on because almost every year I'll go back. You know, I'm smart enough to or safe enough to put a new strap on it before I sit in it. Uh, and some of the old ones are they've been on it so long they've grown into the tree or they dry rot or whatever. So I just normally just leave them there and just you know put one under it or or over it. Well, thank God that I did this last year on one of my favorite spots for for the rut. Uh, just a funnel. I got up in the tree, I sat down, and I just sat down good, and I heard something go pop, mm. like my stand broke. I said, "What in the world?" And my stand moved, you know, maybe just a fraction, not much. But I got to looking, and I couldn't find anything. And finally, I found it. I had my strap, my original strap that was on there was the the buckle or the the hook was hooked into the other hook, okay, and then you know ratcheted tight. Yeah. That hook broke. Broken half. Wow. Never seen one do that. It didn't bend. It broke. Broken half. Mm. And uh thank God that I had another strap on there. Now I would have my safety belt on, so I wouldn't have failed, but I probably still would have hurt myself. Uh yeah. so for everybody listening out there, re strap your stands if you leave them out over yeah. you know, over a period of time. It's Actually, very important. So how, how I've never been to your family property. How how many acres are you hunting over there? Uh twelve hundred. 1200. Okay. So, um, my question is, do do you know, have you known for a while where you were going to hunt tomorrow morning or is this a recent decision to hunt here because of the wind conditions? No, it was, was, I've been knowing for about a week or so that I wanted to go here if the wind stays like this, you can only hunt this place here at my house on something out of the South or East. And uh, anything else like City Can, it's just a small pinch. It's only like 75 yard stretch between a great big old cattle pasture and, and a river. Gotcha. And it, uh, that's the only way you can do it. And uh, you can't approach it any other kind of way, you know, or you're going to booger it up. Uh, so I've been knowing I'm going to hunt there for about a couple, since I've had this deer on camera, when I, used to, when, I used to, when I started getting him in the daylight, I was like, hmm, well, uh, and I already had a lock on there. And, uh, I, I did restrap it the other day, by the way, and uh, and checked it, make sure everything was good. Um, but no, I, I, I mean, I didn't know this deer was here. I, I didn't. I don't. I, if I had him on camera last year, I don't remember having him. Um, you said you have a, a love hate relationship with your cameras. What do you mean by that? But, but but this is what I hate about them. You put them out. You get a mature buck on camera. Then you want to go back every three days to see if he's still coming. Yeah, it's you know? dang- dangerous. And, I, and 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 it's not good. That's a bad. I've seen it. I've done it myself. I've I've got mature deer on camera in the daylight, and then every three or four days you, you know, I'm gonna go check and see if he's there. You know, and you go and you, and you just keep. The more times you go in there, uh, the more times you booger it up. You know, and yeah. uh, and I've and I've seen it. <laughs> just you just turn them nocturnal. Now, are you so, feeding, or, or is, are you catching him so, going in and yes, out? Yes, I do feed, uh, but, and that's another thing, I have a love-hate relationship hunting overfeed, 
because when you get a mature buck coming in to, to feed, he's on pins and needles. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. And if, if you're feeding, it's just like you got a deer on camera right now that's coming to a corn pile or a feeder right now, or or, or a mineral site. Normally, you only have one shot at it. If you don't get him the first time, you go in there. You, you go in there and send it up and, and, and all that, spook them, you know, after deer coming in after dark, you're still in the tree, you got to leave. They're not coming back in the daylight. You know, you, yeah. you got one shot at them. So that's what I, that's what I hate about that. But, but to answer your question, yeah, there are several places like where my son's going tomorrow. It's a, it's a uh, trifecta, I guess you'd say. I got, I got fertilized trees, a clover field on the edge of a clover field and a mineral site and a corn feeder all in one spot, you know? Yeah. And, um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's what we got. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big feed hunter, uh, but I do do it from time to time. So, um, with your cameras, do you run any cell cameras at all? I don't, I don't have any. I've been saying I was going to get one. Um, but, but I do not. That's probably, I, I do to invest in some, I'm getting more and more into the camera thing. I think, year before last was my first three years ago was my first year to start using them and the first year i had one or two i jumped up last year to four or five now i've got eight <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's still a it's pretty getting, low it's, number it's become plum addicted i like going to check my cameras and myself do hunting yeah so well uh, the cell phone thing is just the next it's just the next in your uh your degenerative path into that world, the cell phone is the next thing. Cause I've got two. Right. Of the, I had one last year for the first year. Now I've got two of them. And, uh, it, I guess it's nice, you know, I mean, it's nice. I don't have to go in there very often, but there, you know, I mean, dang, it's, it's an electronic, it quits working and you got to go fix it. You got to go change the batteries right. and you know, so you don't ever That's stay what I hate completely. About them. You know, you... They market them as though, you can put them out and never go back in there until you're ready to hunt. And that's not true. I've not, I mean, every one I've ever had, I mean, you know, eventually two or three weeks, you know, stops sending pictures or the batteries go out and, you know, it just, but it is nice. It's better than the other, the traditional. Yeah. And method, then there's, so there's the big thing, you know, deer see them and, and all of that. Like, look, yeah. here's an example. The, the, the deer that's behind my house. So I got the camera on just a, just a trail. Okay. There's two, two main trails that come through there. And I can, if the deer comes down to either one of them, you should get a picture of them. Almost every picture that I have of that buck, whether it be in the daylight or before daylight, he's looking at the camera. Looking right at There's it. no feed there. Okay, there's no feed except natural browse and, and acre trees that run through there. No feed whatsoever. Yeah. You know, look, he sees that camera, you know. Let's and, talk and he, I about guess that. he hears it click. They do, they do. It doesn't matter how quiet it is. They hear that thing. They hear it go off. I think they, I think they sense the energy in it. I really, I really do. I mean, you know, you got that whole electromagnetic field, and the, the hex suit is, you know, plays into that whole science and all. But hey, that might be my next know, thing. I might invent a hex, a hex suit for hex your game suit camera? that goes over trail cameras. Yeah, yeah. That's well, a, I, that's what I. That's my belief. I believe the deer. Could be. I think you could be right. When when that when that battery fires up and it triggers that shutter and that camera, you know, essentially what happens, the camera comes on, you know, and they've got it down to where it, it happens really fast and it's a real quick thing. But still, it's a burst of energy, and I believe that animals sense energy, and I think matured animals that are very much on edge and very much aware of their environment, it's a they're walking in a safe place and all of a sudden in a very close proximity to them, there's a burst of energy. And I think they sense it. 
and yeah, they, that's you know, that's why I think a lot of them are looking at the camera more so than the lights and all that kind of stuff. Well, Glenn, there's, there's something to the sixth sense thing when it comes to animals. People, you know, people call you crazy or whatever. But I'm, I'm gonna give you a test. Uh, I've been around horses and cattle and stuff most of my life. Try to sneak up on a horse. If he's in a stall, just minding his own business, chewing his cud in there, eating hay or whatever he's doing, try to sneak up behind him and and get within 30 yards of him. I promise you he's going to turn around and look at you. I don't care how quiet you are or whatever. He knows you're there. He feels you. Hmm. you know. And I, I have a theory that especially a mature deer, whether it be a doe or a buck, you know, has that same, same, uh, Insight, you know, they can do almost. the same thing, the same yeah. instinct. Yeah, instinct. And that's what it is. It's just instinct, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's bred in them. Well, we talked, uh, Locke, it was the last, what was it, the last podcast that I said I wasn't going to do cameras this year? Um, yeah, I think it was. No. Yeah, that, yeah, was, that, was, with, that was with Ben. That was with um, Ben Berard. Yeah, Glenn, I, I mentioned on the last podcast that um, I'm not doing I'm not doing cameras at all this year. Um, it has a lot to do with the fact that I don't have time. Um, and then number two, um, a camera. I, I would say less than ten percent of the deer I've ever killed, a camera played a major factor in me patterning, patterning and killing him um, yeah. or her. Um, either the cameras were confirming what I figured was already there, or it would randomly throughout the year, send me this teaser photo of a buck that was just moving through on his way to Texas or something. And, (laughs) and, and I spent the rest of the season chasing a ghost for a deer that's 18 parishes away, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, but you're mostly hunting public though, right? I am. Um, yeah. And that, so that's a whole different ball game. But I mean, that's, that's a, but at the same That's time, right. at the same time, um, you know, when it comes to deer hunting and, and especially mobile hunting, um, I I've majorly believe that your first time hunting an area is your one of your greatest chances of success of killing a deer there. That's you know Warren Womack's tactic. That uh, is, I hundred percent agree. Yeah, and and it's it's a great tactic for hunting um, travel routes and feed trees. Where you find sign, you know, like this is my system. I would, you know, if I was going to hunt a brand new place, I'd find out what the wind's going to be this afternoon and tomorrow, maybe the next few days. And I would go around lunchtime or one o'clock at the latest. Um, and I'd go out looking for a sign, looking for a, um, a big, um, a big oak tree that was dropping a swamp oak or something like that. And, um, I was looking for heavy trails and heavy proof of animals eating under this oak tree um and if i could find that if i could if i could find it look like there was a deer party there the night before i was going to set up there because one of those things if not five of them were going to come back right at right at uh at nighttime and um and if i didn't see anything that night i'd come back the next morning i'd leave my stand overnight one night never leave my stand more than one night and um and I would hunt the next morning, and the next morning generally was less successful than the evening hunt, being in the first hunt that I made there. But um, what a lot of people do though is, um, and Ben was talking about this on last episode, is um, you know scout hunting, 
uh, or they won't scout hunt, meaning they go scouting with nothing, no weapon, no stand, no, no nothing. They walk in the woods with trail cameras in their boots and their blue jeans, and they just start walking in a direction and they find sign and then they hang cameras to see what's going there. Well, I've said in the past, if you get a daylight picture of a, of a target buck during the daytime on camera, you have, vi- you have, uh, photographic evidence proof that you could have killed him if you were there instead at that point mm-hmm. in time. And so if you go off of that theory of like, well, okay, my, my camera is technically capturing the first chance I had to kill an animal. That's the truth. You get an animal that you want to kill during the daylight hours on camera you can go ahead and cross off your chance, first chance to kill him off your list because now you have a photo of him instead of him dead in, a, in the back of your truck. Yep. Um, okay. And the the only, you know, to negate myself on that, you know, there's a lot of people that scout in the evenings or prior to a hunt to see what's coming and they can't actually hunt that evening. You know, that's that happens a lot. So I'm not saying you should stop doing that. But um, I think we need to stop using cameras to confirm what's in the woods. Like we know there's deer in the woods. Um, if you're hunting the right places and you know that big bucks hang out in thickets and big bucks hang out in less pressured areas, then you have a greater chance of killing a killable buck, whether that be in a killable's relative term that changes from person to person. That could be a spike. It could be a six point. It could be a monster 12 that somebody won't shoot unless it's 150 inches. Right. But, (laughs) but once, once you get to that level where you're hunting larger deer, well then hopefully by that point in time, you don't need to rely on your cameras to see what's in the area. If you know where big bucks live, it's nice to have a little bit of photo proof, but if you're running cameras for weeks, checking it every single week, all you're doing is hurting yourself, going in there, checking it over and over and over again. Now, well, I think there's a there's a distinct uh, um, something to distinguish in this because there's you know you're right, but there's also a dis- a distinction between public and private because some of what you're saying can be offset if you have complete autonomous control. It doesn't eliminate the um, problem with human presence, but let's just use this example. Glenn, on his property, he has autonomy over that. He can establish ways to maneuver within his property that you might not be able to do on public land where your only option is to be way too disturbing to go in and out of this place, and you better hunt it. But Glenn can set himself up where he can monitor an area because he's got unlimited control of how to go in and out, when to go in and out, who's going in and out around him, where you, on the other hand, you find a place. Your only entrance is kind of risky right in terms of uh, disturbing the area and you don't know who's coming in behind you so you better hunt it and not miss yeah, your window does that yeah. make sense yeah yeah yeah. that's the way i do when i go to the when i hunt the midwest or I, you know which i have for years and it's all public uh you know I, boots on the ground stand on my back uh finding the finding the hot sign and get on it you know and then, you know, if you don't do any good, you do the same thing the next day, you know. Yeah. I don't bring any trail cameras with me or anything. When I hunt, when I go make a hunt like that, that's only for four or five days, I, I don't have time to run a camera. I'm you know, I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm putting boots on the ground trying to find the hottest sign, you know. Yep. Um and then and then hunt it. And and if it don't pay off, I'm not gonna stay there very long. <laughs> I'm going I'm going to find some more. Well uh, for the people know? for the people that want to run cameras or are insistent on hanging a camera as soon as they find a spot 
that they think a deer is at. Well, guess what? You're probably right. Like the reality is deer are everywhere. They're just phenomenal hide and seek champions. Okay. So yep. you, you don't, don't need to confirm that there's deer in the area. If you're trying to target a specific deer, that's a whole nother topic entirely. Like you can dismiss everything I just said. If you're trying to kill the buck and no other deer you capture on camera matters, except for that buck, then yeah, you need cameras and you need as much Intel to kill that deer as possible. Otherwise, you're just playing cat and, cat and mouse with a ghost that you don't know whether or not yeah. he exists. But yeah. But here's the thing is um I think cell cameras are the most I don't want to say undervalued discounted tool in a hunter's bag right now. I don't have a problem with cameras. I want to clarify this. Cam- hunting cameras, trail cameras are not a problem for me whatsoever. I don't disagree with it. I'm not vehemently against it or anything like that. I'm against people disrupting their hunting area. That's what I'm against. And there's a lot of people, maybe it's not you two, and it's not me because I don't do it anymore, but there's a lot of people that go and check their camera every three days. And they yep. don't. they are not aware. They don't even know what they don't know. They don't know how much they're hurting themselves. Like when you start off, just think about your pattern of photos on a new trail camera. I'm going to guess your first week is fire. Just deer everywhere. I mean, you get deer, bobcats, coyotes, hogs, everything's coming through. And then your second week, you start getting younger deer, fawns, spikes, small does, and every one of them's looking at the camera. And then about your third, fourth week, it's a ghost town. Yeah. And guess whose fault that is? It's your fault. If you're going to set it up every if you, every you haven't yep. if you haven't learned by now, listen to the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast. We blame you for your own problems a lot. Yes. <laughs> okay. We are. Yeah. I, like I had this joke. We're the blunt uncle of the yeah, family. Yeah, sure. man. I've got this joke. Like <laughs> if I could convince my daughter that she's the she's the the causation of all of her own problems, she'd be so much happier. She's not even two yet, but she causes every <laughs> problem she has on her own. It's self inflicted. Okay. Yep. Same thing with bow hunting is we get excited to be in the woods we get excited to run camera we do all these things that we're trained that we think we need to do to kill an animal and you could toss 90 percent of that shit out the window you don't need to put a feed block out you don't need to necessarily hang you know six ladder stands on a hundred a hundred acre lease i mean go in there be as minimally invasive as possible hang your cameras high high and down to where if like you should you should start to try and train your brain that when you have bucks, especially bucks, and also older does too will blow your cover too. When you start having deer that are looking at your camera every second, third, fifth, or maybe every picture, you've already screwed up. Like you, They are alerted to your presence. You no longer have an undisturbed area. There's an intruder, and they are on high alert. And I was... I'm not going to say ahead. you're not going to kill them. I'm not going to say that's not going to happen, but that's where skittish deer come from, and that's when they know, like, oh, shit, it's hunting season. These red oh, flash things are back thing. in the woods. Especially a mature buck. You, oh, yeah. You can I count on that. Another thing that happens in our area because of just our culture, hunting culture, this happens all the time. You go in the woods, whether it's your lease or probably on, let's say private. This is more of a private land thing. You find a place. Um, and it's great, right? I mean, you've 
wow, look at this spot I found. There's so much deer activity here. There's buck sign, there's trails, there's, there's whatever. Well, go, let me go get a bag of corn and throw it out here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you've this, already found yeah. where the deer are. This is surely drawing in. It goes to this extent. I've told this story. I think I told this story on the podcast last year, or maybe it was another podcast I was on. I'm not sure. But this happened to me, and I literally almost, like, I went on into a full, like, bite my tongue, don't go full Kyler mode on, on the blunt honesty thing, you know, and get myself in trouble. <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm, I'm working with, guided hunters in the midwest i'm guiding helping someone and some guys from down south are up hunting and i'm trying to get them set up i find a spot on the edge of a cornfield cut cornfield there's corn everywhere right everywhere yeah like a cut cornfield with a very mediocre combine put it that way (laughs) to paint the picture (laughs) they left corn everywhere and it ain't been cut but like a week or two so there's still corn everywhere and there's so many acorn trees in this draw that runs up beside the the beautifulest spot you could ever imagine creek with water acorn trees cut corn anyway i find a corner in this this field where there's buck sign and it's kind of coming out of a draw and it's just perfect man it's just like hang right there and sit there a couple days with the wind right deer gonna come through here they're gonna cut the corner of this cornfield this they're coming to this cornfield etc cetera, etc cetera. i got a hunter who says hey man uh you think we ought to go get like a bag of that big and jays or something and pour it out right there on the edge of the field it's like <laughs> yeah, i was like dude, you realize you realize there's say that again but slowly <laughs> i was like you realize there's 400 acres of cut corn in front of that stand and enough acorn trees in the 40 acre draw behind you to you know <laughs> more than you could ever want and it's like yeah. but we're conditioned to that i guess i mean i was saying if we're condi- we find the spot and like you like tyler said we're just like so stuck in our ways and it's like okay well let's throw up a stand and throw out a bag of corn and put a camera here and just confirm what we already know and then before we know it we've just yeah. we've just lowered our chances yeah around here though i mean look it's, it's, it's 75 percent of the hunters that i know <clears throat> yeah hunt that way the, the only way they know how to hunt is throughout a bag of corn or a rice bran or something like that put a stand up put a camera on it and hunt it hunt it to death you know and wonder why they never see anything in the daylight you know it, after the first day it, they hunt it it's yeah. the equivalent of a baseball player walking up to the plate Pitcher throws the first pitch. He sees it really well, right? He's right on time. He's like, oh, I got this. I got this. I see him. He's not fooling me. I'm right on time. So he just steps in there and starts swinging before the pitch, before the pitcher pitches the next pitch. Mm-hmm. Just gets all yeah. way out ahead of himself and just screws himself. Yeah. That's what we do as deer hunters. Well, like we've said in the past, you know, human beings, we we struggle to not interrupt things that you know change we're, things yeah yeah we're i mean we're the great ruiners of all time there's you know very few things like do you know how do you know how intelligent and and um and uh confident you have to be in your in yourself as a human being to say hey man this is really nice i'm i'm gonna do nothing you know um yeah. i mean we tend to ruin just about everything contentment, that we touch. contentment just evades us by and, nature and the reality is is that if you if you you know were able to run a, a parallel um you know case study on what would happen if you did something versus what would happen if you didn't do something well in this case like when it comes to deer hunting and feeding on an area that let's say um 
you know, deer aren't used to being fed, you're hurting yourself. Whereas if you hunt, if you're like Glenn's family property, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that y'all been feeding out there for decades now. Okay. Yeah. So you've got generations of deer, generations on generations of deer that have been born into literally born into a corn culture, a feed culture, a, 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 a mineral block culture and where their mamas brought them to the corn pile. Their mamas brought them to the, the feeder. They, you know, brought them to the, the mineral site when they got older. And for that buck, that's normal life. And, and because of that on private land, feeding might not hurt you as bad on a on a piece of land that has been um, historically fed on for the majority of the year. You don't have to feed all year, but let's say you start feeding in July and then you don't go hunting until October. Well, that's that's a good normalizing period right there. Okay, yeah. but when you go out three days before bow season on a twenty five acre tract of land and these deer have never tasted <laughs> corn in their life, and you throw <laughs> out a bag of corn, I mean, my God, I couldn't think of. Uh, anything, anything worse. Yeah. Anything that would be just totally <clears throat> disruptive like that. That's gotta be the hardest thing to, for a deer to, to try and fathom is like, why did this feast just fall like from show, the sky? I'm, I'm hunting <laughs> in the morning. Uh, that would be just say, okay, that deer has been coming through there. Not every day, but, but <clears throat> a couple of days a week. Okay. He, he's, he's, he's bedding in that thicket and, that, and that's his route to get back to bed. If I went in there, yesterday and threw out a pile of corn in that in that pinch what do you think that deer is going to do gone yeah he's, yeah he's i mean that's what most people do they go in there, oh look at this trail look at these rubs this gone. deer you know i mean there's uh rubs from last year you know some fresh ones from this year I, i'm gonna throw out a bag of corn here and see what happens yeah see what i get on camera <laughs> i'm not sure what the logic i tell you what you're gonna get on camera yeah, well, a doe and a spike. <laughs> Some, <yeah. laughs> Some raccoons. Yeah. It's. I, I think it, it sounds like we're criminalizing feeding, and it's not the act of feeding. It's just, you know, it's not. It's it. It's not a a, a, a genie, a magic lamp. It's not a fix all. It's just. It's, it's. 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 You really should do like what you were talking about, Kyler. Is if it, it should be a management practice, and if you hunt around it yeah. and it and it and it assists in your success, that's all fine and good. There's it's nothing wrong with it, but it's it's used as a management practice. It doesn't sub- take the place of you being a woodsman and understanding how to hunt deer. Because if your only idea is, well, let me throw something out that in my mind they can't resist, so they're certainly going to show right back up here where they've obviously already live. It's just yeah. not. It's just not smart. It's counterproductive in too many cases. Yeah, is what it is. Yeah. But I want to say this about the trail camera thing because I kind of kind of take that another direction because I don't think I'm probably maybe I'm not the only one, but but I like that that whole idea about I, I have this romantic approach to it where I kind of miss the days when because for those of us that are hunting private property. And and I know Glenn can attest to this for sure because I, mean, I just kind of heard it in some of his preseason talk there we kind of know i mean there's i'm not saying there's no deer that you that that there i'm not saying you have a picture of every single deer i'm not saying that but generally speaking you have a really good idea of what deer you might see or your son might see tomorrow Mm -hmm. and you know 
but I kind of miss the days when my dad would stick me up in a stand, and the state record might be right over the next yeah, hill. The mystery, I don't know. Yeah, the mystery of what you may see. I, 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 totally I kind of miss. I kind of miss that. Just talk about that. It's the very same thing. Yeah, cameras it, are. It, it does. Like I said, that's, that's the reason why I have a love hate relationship. But I love them because it is a great tool to get to drop on a mature buck. There ain't no question about it if you use them correctly, uh, or, or you know, be uh, smart with your with your moves with them. Uh, but then again, it takes a little bit of, like you said, that that yeah. mystique out of it. It's harder know, uh, that we it's all it's harder. To, you know? It's harder to convince yourself, and I know this is true. I've seen it happen, you know, before, and I know people that this has happened to year after year, every season. But it's harder to sit up there and convince yourself that you're going to, you know, potentially see that big old mature buck that's just too smart to get his picture taken he's here i know he's here and i i'm just gonna see him and and have that it's that's really hard to fathom and if you know it, it's just something about it takes a little bit away from i don't know i i guess just coming from that um that place of like i said where it, it was it, your imagination could run wild i i don't know i just kind of miss that i and and i think that the 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 cameras um have taken so much of that away and i don't know i kind of maybe i sound like i, I, look, I like the road romance my dad hates cameras he thinks that's the craziest thing ever happened to hunt he well, is I'll tell you something somebody come, told me the other day and he he thinks that uh it's cheating pretty much what I'll he tell you said a friend yeah. of mine told me this the other day and i never thought of this and i i actually would want to pat him on the back for it because it's a pretty forward way of thinking and and i guess just to kind of you know, just going with what it is, it's just things are what they are. And he said, you know, for me, he said, I'm just going to be up front and blunt about it. I get excited. He said, I want to manage my property and I don't want to shoot younger bucks. And, but I know myself. And if I don't keep up these pictures and kind of have an idea, I'm going to shoot deer that I don't the first thing comes out. Yeah. yeah. He said, he said, I'm just being honest with myself. He said, that's why I enjoy deer hunting. He said, I, I see a nice eight point. That might be a young eight point that we want to let grow because that's what we're choosing to do on our property. If I don't have them pictures to slow myself down and make myself look at that deer and try to compare yeah. him against a picture I've taken, I'm going to shoot deer that I don't really want to shoot. And you know, a lot of people won't, a lot of people are too manly to admit that. You know what I'm saying? Well, oh, I know yeah, what a mature yeah. buck is, right? I know what a yeah. mature buck is, and they don't. They're shooting. Oh, they're man. shooting immature bucks every year. So I kind of pat him on the back, and say, you know what? I mean, it's cool that you that you can admit that. Hey, and and that's kind yep. of a practical thing. I, that that well, makes sense to me. Well, so, the thing about a, hunting is everybody's at a different stage of their hunting career. You know, yeah. if that's what yeah. they want. Then, then, then have at it. Huh. I'm I'm at the stage of my career where, um, if it makes me happy. In other words, when I'm when I see it coming through the timber, uh, if it floats my boat, I'm gonna try to lug it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Uh, that's just the way I am. And I and I, look, I make plenty of mistakes, but uh, that's 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 where I'm at. I'm I, you know I have killed my share of nice deer, and I try to hold out for a better deer. But people that that know me well will tell you, if I hunt hard for three or four weeks and hadn't shot anything, and you know I had had an opportunity. God bless the next one that gives me an opportunity. <laughs> That's just the way I am, you know. All right, guys. This is the Louisiana Bowhunter Shop of the Week brought to you by Tacticam. This week we're on the phone with Jay James out of Jay's Archery in Pineville, Louisiana. Jay, thanks for joining us, man. Oh, no problem, man. 
How's things been? Uh, we're doing great. I hear uh, I hear you've got some people bringing in bows, wanting same day service the day before bow season. How uh, how's that? How fun is that? Oh man, it's a constant. Always, every year, everybody wanting stuff done instantly instead of getting their stuff done ahead of time. Yeah, we man, we've been talking about it for weeks now, trying to get people into shops early. Back in September, July, get it in your shop early. You don't want to be the guy that uh, that brings it in day before the season and think you're going to be out there with new set of strings or or a a tune you know um those things take time it does you know know, i try to get i try to get tune jobs out same day but strings and stuff nowadays you 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 can't um there's so many different bows and you can have three or four bows with the same string lengths but the serving locations are all different so it's impossible to stock strings Mm-hmm. for everything and since i build strings i actually can get a turnaround pretty much quicker than a lot of people because i can build them but this time of the year you know 15 20 sets behind it don't happen overnight yep absolutely well uh you know we talked about on the opening episode how um there's a lot of changes in the state with archer shops and a couple of clubs um so tell everybody where you are now uh, the new location is uh, Highway 28 East in Pineville, uh, 2600 Suite A on Highway 28 in Pineville. It's in the old log cabins. If you're from that area, everybody knows the log cabins. Uh, moved up there about four, four and a half months ago. Uh, really good location uh, right off the highway there and easy to get to. A lot better than my old shop out in the middle of the rice field, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know a lot of people, it doesn't really matter where you move to, they're going to follow you. Well, I guess Eunice was a good testament to that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I got, I've got, i got customers from all over. Now, I've worked in different parts of the state and this and that. And once you get that trust and that clientele, they'll pretty much follow you, you know, just about wherever, as long as you do good work and take care of them. Absolutely. Well, um, anything, uh, anything new with your shop this year? Any new brands or anything that you're carrying? Uh, you know, man, I've got probably picking up any new brands. I have pretty much the full gamut. Gamut. I have Matthews, Hoyt, PSE, Bowtech, Bear, Elite, Prime, um, Raven, Ten Point, Scorpid, uh, Excalibur, uh, Carbon Express, and Bear Crossbows. <clears throat> Doing a lot of victory errors now, man. Uh, they're doing really well. Uh, their new stuff is phenomenal. Yeah, so those uh, are the uh, those are the um, the small diameter ones, the micro diameter ones, right? Well, they have everything. Um, they have they were the first company to actually do a micro diameter hunting arrow, a modern hunting arrow that's you know woven and not protruded um, with the VAPS. And pretty much everybody else now copied that, but. You know, they got bought out a few years ago by a company that invented the graphite golf shaft. So their t- their their tolerances and technology and engineering and stuff is just kind of through the roof right now. Wow, very cool. Yeah, anytime uh, anytime somebody tells me they're shooting VAPS or shooting Victories, I know that they probably came from you. You know, I know you're. Yeah, there ain't, there ain't many of us in the state that sell them. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, well I, any anything else you want to add before we jump off of here? No, man, uh, all the new bows are coming out. I actually got the new 2020 PSE bows in the shop Friday. They're not being released till, well, October the 1st today. Yeah. Uh, and I've already got them played with them. They're real nice. Everybody's uh, fixed to start sending the new bows out. So 
if you're looking for something new, it'll be the time to start to start coming and checking out the new stuff. Well, this uh, this podcast is going to air on opening day. Anything you could tell us about the new PSEs? They lay the limb angle way back, so it's a way more parallel limbo with a little longer riser, and they are phenomenally dead in your hand. Uh, new colors, you're going to be able to get them in first light camo, mm-hmm. uh, which looks really, really good. They have a new grip, so you're not just shooting off the riser. Uh, one other neat, really neat thing is, uh, by the way, there's still the 80, uh, 90% let off the Evolve cam. Mm-hmm. All that's the same. Speeds are almost the same. They're a little bit slower because they have a little more brace height, but not much. Um, but they have two stabilizer holes on the front. Really? Which Yeah, which is going to allow you to, if you, if you decide to go with a lower hole, it's going to give you more leverage. So you don't have to shoot as heavy as stabilizer to get the same amount of leverage it's pretty neat that is cool man well, i'm looking forward to check those out well uh well, look man i appreciate you jumping on with us tonight and uh i hope uh hope you have a busy year this year all right man i appreciate it all right, anything guys. let me know bud. thanks jay all right guys that's the shop of the week uh brought to you by tacticam and uh, we'll catch you next week Well, I'll tell you, yeah. you know, my perspective on what y'all are talking about with cameras is, you know, this is why this is why I like having Locke on the show with me. It's why I like talking to people like you, Glenn. It's because y'all hunt private land and I don't my brain doesn't typically go towards the um stabilized hunting environment of a private parcel of land. Right. Um mine yeah. goes to the very easily disruptible, fragile public land and Mm -hmm. with so many things working against you i don't want people to get in their own way of themselves with um you know camp poor camera management practices such as you know hanging a camera too low or um putting it too close to the trail to where your sense on it and you're just going to push the deer to uh, you know another part of the property um or you know, I remember somebody sent me a camera. Somebody sent me a picture last year or video actually um, last year of uh, four big bucks on public land and uh, sent it to me in a text message. And um, you could see all four of them coming at you like uh, cattle one after another. And the first one was the smallest. Second one was a little bigger. The biggest one was in the very back. And, um, the first one walks past the camera. You see him walk by. Second one comes, looks at the camera, keeps walking by. Third one is the third biggest. Fourth one's the biggest. Those two stop in their tracks. And like, this is all on video. Cameras at eye level, looking right at the camera from five feet away, looks at it, does that, you know, deer head bob where they drop head its bob, head yep. to the say, side. That's what they did. And literally bolted and took off in the other direction. And that video was sent to me like, it was like literally, holy shit, look what I got on camera, is what it said. That's what the text message said. Like, you won't believe what I got on camera. You won't get them again. And I wrote him back (laughs) a very very deflating response. I said, man, I don't think you're ever going to see those deer ever again. He goes, no, man, you know, they, they ain't going nowhere. Fast forward a couple months. I said, hey, well, how was your season out there? Man, never saw any of those deer. That's all it takes. It only takes once. There's no there's no three-strike rule for a deer. 
a deer is not like, oh, well, if I see that camera two more times, I'm not coming down this trail again. <laughs> no, man. You get it's fight or flight. You they, get they are a chance. You get one yep. chance. And and so when I say that I I'm not against trail cameras, it's not what I'm saying. Because from a management standpoint and an inventorying standpoint and a um, education standpoint on what to or what not to shoot, they're fantastic tools. But for just satisfying our curiosity, we can really hurt, do some damage to ourselves, you know. Um, and we always get in too close. We always go in too, uh, you know, not scent free, and we end up ruining that area. Whether it be a feed tree or a trail or a bedding area or a creek crossing, I mean, when you push too hard and people, that's the thing I'm trying to teach people is you need to know when you're going beyond your boundary of what you should be doing. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. So trail cameras are great, but you got to hang them high, angled down where a deer cannot have it at eye level, and then you still might not get away with it. You know? Yeah. I, I wrote in an article last year, I wrote an article last year about calling to deer. Um, and so the article was written about when and how to call, but that some of this plays into that because calling to a deer is much like um, putting a camera up or feeding a deer. You know, you don't have. And one of the things that I said in there that I felt like it was it was a good thought. It encapsulated a lot. I, I put, you know, when we stop and think about it, a deer is not burdened with ego and he's also not burdened with humility. He has fight or flight and it's always flight yeah always the only time a deer fights is for breeding rights with another deer when it comes to anything else if he's faced with fight or flight he always flights like you like you said with the three strike row he doesn't have ego he doesn't have humility he doesn't consider it it's life or death everything all the time and if we would stop and think about that in when we throw out feed how we hang cameras how we approach our first sit of opening day and how that's going to play that it to me, that I, I'm not saying I always do it, but I try to keep that in mind because, like you say, your buddy, what made me think of this is what you say, your buddy's response. Oh, they ain't going nowhere. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say that? Ah, oh, yeah, I know I bumped him going in there, but he'll be back in a day or two. Maybe, maybe he will, but you're Possibly. you're looking at that like from the perspective of a human way of thinking where he's going to go lay up in his soft, comfortable safe bed and he's going to contemplate what just happened and decide well that really wasn't so bad i'm, I'm probably going <laughs> I'm going to give the place another chance <laughs> he's not going to do that i mean he's not going to do that he doesn't have that he does not it's not that he's choosing not to do that he literally does not have that mental capacity well when whenever you've gotten busted by a doe i would say 50% of the time and I might be, I might be really generous right there. It might even be seventy five percent of the time. How often, when you get busted by a doe, does that bitch stand within fifty yards of you and blow her head off and alert every other animal in the woods? A lot. She will stand there. Sometimes even sacrifice herself so that everything else can get away. Have you ever seen a buck do that? No, no. Never. Hell, no. They don't I, 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 do I'm it. a firm believer that you don't you you don't know well over well over fifty percent of the deer the bucks the that ones you that do win you never see them you don't know it yep. I've, I'm a firm believer that throughout the throughout the course of a hunter's year from scouting to hunting both considered the amount of times that you enter and exit the woods I am convinced that the number of deer that you 
spook is uh, that you know is is well over fifty percent of the bucks that you spook. You never even know that they were there. Yep, never. A buck has I have never had a, a, anything over a spike stand and blow at me. Anything with never. the experience yeah. of more than one year on this planet, walking this earth, stand and blow at me. And if well, you w- so, what do you say to the guy who says, "All right, well, I got on my lease, and I I had deer smell me and blowing and blowing, and I went back on that stand next weekend, and the deer came right back through there." I'm not saying that the deer won't won't for some reason. <laughs> we were talking about luck in- earlier. That's where that's luck. Well, I, I think that, I mean, there are situations where this is where the deer water, this is where they feed, this is where they bed, and you might get lucky and all that. But to think, what all I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to say that for some reason the deer don't come back to that food source or they don't use that trail again. And maybe you get lucky and they do it in the daylight, but they're not doing it because they made the decision that you didn't scare them that bad. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So you the take that. Get, the odds are way slimmer. Yeah. Day. You're, you're so. taking that bet. So to, te- to convince yourself that, oh, well, I think he probably smelled me a little bit, but he didn't really know what I was to say things like that is you're convincing yourself that a deer thinks the way you do. And if you encounter that deer again, if you hunt in a place where this is just where the deer lives, I mean, yeah, there's a chance you're going to encounter the deer again. But it won't be because he went and made the decision that you didn't scare him that bad. And if you think of things on that level, it changes the way you the way you hunt, in my opinion. It should. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I, think it, I think in that example, it has a lot to do with how the deer reacts. Um, I think if you get yeah. blown at and you like you have a doe standing her ground, stomping her feet, and then she's she's sitting there making sure everything's gone before she leaves, like she's the last one out. Um, yeah, you might have blown that area out. Um, meaning you came in, you were too loud, or you got spotted too directly, um, and uh, you might have blown that area out. If you you're right. If you come in and you've got a like all you see is a white tail running. And you don't, and, and I don't mean a white tail deal. I mean a tail up in the air, hopping through the woods. You see the a, a pair of tails running away from you, and no blowing, no nothing, and it's just run, run, run until until you can't hear or see them anymore. They'll be back in a couple hours. I believe that. Um, I I think you didn't do that much damage. Who was it that said that? Was it on our podcast last year, Kyler? Where somebody used the analogy? Maybe it was even you. That in some cases, if a deer flees and he becomes safe and he never really smells you, he just knows that you weren't supposed to be there, you were a predator of some kind, and and he flees, that it's actually not a bad thing because that is proof to him that his instinct works. Okay, well, I'm I'm out of there, you know, and I, I, I I don't remember exactly how all that worked. I mean, it sounded really logical to me. It was like, okay, well, if a deer... If a deer comes into a place and they see you and they smell you and it's a major situation, you shoot at him and miss and all that, and he's like really disturbed, that's one thing. But if you just simply go through a place and the deer has to get up and leave or he sees something, bobs his head one time and trots off, and he gets away and he's unharmed and he doesn't stand over there and see you and smell you and all that kind of stuff, he just knows something wasn't right, well, then nature's just taking its course there. I mean, that's what he does. He runs away. Okay, I ran away. Everything's good. You know, this is what I'm supposed to do and – you know, this is proof that where I was bedded, I can get away. 
So that, I can go was, back there. That was Parker. That was on. Was it um, Parker? That beast hunting technique thing. Th- that was on. We were talking about thermals and hunting by water and and um, uh, what was it? The 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 keep the wind the deer keep the wind at their back and they're you know to where they can yeah they can smell from behind them and see in front of them. Um, and they have vantage points, you know, he, you know, he, Parker's hunting in Alabama. That was, um, I can't remember what episode number that was, but that was public land tactics was the name of it with Parker McDonald and, uh, Par- Parker McDonald is the, um, the host of, um, uh, Southern ground, Southern ground podcast. Yeah. Southern ground hunting. And, um, that's what he said. Uh, and that, and you were on that episode with it was you, me and him. Yeah. And he had some great insight when it came to hunting, um, swirling winds and wind direction and, and, um, terrain and how deer, um, position themselves in, in different types of terrain to stay safe. And, um, I think that is a, like a direct, um, quote from the beast tactics or, or understanding deer from like Dan and false perspective and things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm not that familiar with the direct beast tactics. Um, yeah. Uh, my, myself, I think, um, I've hunted. Well, I just found it interesting is when you said like how a deer reacts. Well, I mean, we all, if we've hunted a long time, you know, and we've had a lot of experiences in deer stand, and we can we we can come to grips with that again. Stephen, the things that I just said and the things that we've talked about, we do we do know the difference between an extremely spooked deer and a deer that's just acting the way deer do. They're nervous, something's not right. Let me just leave. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm terrified and I'm abandoning. It just means I'm not gonna I, I go eat over here because something's not right over there. We we and, uh we contradict ourselves a lot on the podcast because well it's because there's so no many, there's no black and white. There's so many there's so many situations, you know. Um yeah. like like somebody that only hunts private land probably thinks my theory of trail cameras is idiotic. Whereas somebody that hunts public land is like, hell yeah, I understand. Like this has happened to me. And vice versa. Um and yeah. That's what makes it so fun, right? Everybody's got a different, yeah. you know, uh, strategy or whatever they, you know, exactly whatever they call their their uh, way of getting things done. You know, is different. That to me, that's what's intriguing about it. Absolutely, and it's not right. ever the same either, truthfully, yeah. because yeah. the things we're talking yeah. about, I feel, I know, I am, and I feel like most people would be, and you know, you're talking about your your statistical majority on any of this, like. Whatever your experiences is, what happens the most? I mean, I think we can all be like, man, I can't believe that just happened. Like that, that's never happened before, but that deer acted this way and deer don't ever act that way. So it's never the same ever, you know, but there are patterns. And when it comes to, you know, for me, like you said, I mean, we're, we're varying uh, our guest and then me and you are always got a different, different experiences, different, little different opinion. And for me, I'm always hunting mature bucks. That's what I'm after. You know, so it, I, I don't care if that young eight point, you know, is going to come back. Cause I ain't hunting him. So, you know, I'm going to, to hunt in a different way because I, I'm hunting for an older, mature buck and I've got to hunt a certain way. And so my opinions in general about the way I hunt is designed to get a big deer in front of me with a bow and arrow. I say a big deer, an old deer in front of me with a bow and arrow. And, you know, where as opposed to uh, Mr. Mr. Warren Womack, for example, he has a lot of. Uh, experience and a lot of insight he's he's not focused on that he's focused more on just general sightings and just getting deer in bow range any deer in bow range he's just looking for 
the highest percentage opportunity at an animal. Well, so he and I are coming at certain things from a different direction, and neither one's wrong or right. They're just different. Yeah. that's. A, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but that's something we should talk to Warren about is, um, you know, whether or not he's ever specifically hunted a deer, uh, one specific deer. Um, you know, we know he's, he's got a lot of deer. He's a fantastic deer hunter. That's undeniable. Um, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear any stories he might have on maybe one that eluded him or one that he had his sights on and he let other ones pass until he got to it. Yeah. You know, um, I call people like Mr. Warren, who, who was a personal friend of mine. I just saw him at a restaurant here in town, uh, last week. Matter of fact, got to talk to him with a minute for a minute. Uh, I call him like a bobcat hunter, a bobcat hunts for food and just say he's after a rabbit he could care less whether it's a mature rabbit a baby rabbit you know a female rabbit he don't care he don't want some rabbit yeah and that's the way mr warren is you know and uh i tell you what i hate i would hate for him to be hunting me because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would get yeah. you <laughs> yeah so but anyway i just using that he's a predator you know what i mean like he he is he is he's he's hunting he's trying to well he'll kill. tell you yeah. Yeah. He yeah he's t- he's looking for a high right? percentage. I admire, I admire him for that. I wish there was more people like that, to be honest with you. He's looking. Yeah. He, he When we've talked to him in other podcasts that I've listened to him and the one that he was on with us, he will tell you he's looking for the highest percentage spot to get a deer in bow range. Not a yeah. five-year-old eight-point, not a, a deer, this or that, a deer. He's looking for a place where a white-tailed deer that is going to come in the daylight in range of his bow and arrow when he's walking around he's not looking for a mature buck sign he's looking for deer sign and he's looking to get in the hottest spot where the most deer and the high percentage chance that's you know but for me that does me no good in the style i'm hunting because yeah if i'm if i'm if i'm hunting a place and i got a camera out i, I got places everywhere on on the private places i hunt where on pretty much any given day any weather any wind i got a spot somewhere where i can go see a deer yeah but what damage am I doing to the deer by going in there and, well, I mean, it's a good day. You never know. Well, yeah, I kind of do know. I'm going to see a spike and a little four point that I get pictures of all the time. And there's a couple of those, but I'm kind of making some risk on going in there on this day because I'm probably not going to see that deer, but he's going to know I came in there if I go hunt that spot. Well, what good is it for me to go look at a spike and a four point if I know I'm not going to shoot them? And, yeah. and and so it's just two different perspectives, but none of it is black and white. Back to your point, we contradict ourselves because it's not black and white. Because next time I say that, my buddy might go hunt that spot and actually kill that deer that I thought would never show up on that day. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know. So. Well, um, let's let's pull it back over here on the rails of of tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> bash we bash cameras, uh, corn hunters. And and uh, and bobcat hunters. Let's let's hear where you're going hunting tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. What's your strategy? <laughs> All right. So um, so my my strategy tomorrow is um, I'm hunting. Uh, I'm gonna do a morning hunt and an evening hunt, and uh, they're both gonna be pretty short. I'm probably not gonna hunt past eight thirty or nine. I've got a lot of work to do tomorrow, and um, my morning hunt is going to be a funnel. It's a pinch point. It's between, um, a very small levee, like a, like a crawfish levee from, um, from, a uh, a ditch that was dug, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and, 
and then that ditch. It's only about 10 yards wide. It's a funnel, um, and it follows along a um, uh, a bit some swamp bottom that uh, that forces the deer to this higher ridge, oak ridge. Um, I don't have any cameras running there. Um, I have not been there this year. I have not stepped foot on it. Um, I killed a nice buck out of there last year. Um, and so you don't have a stand in place. You're I do not have a stand. I'm bringing my stand with me. I'm bringing my, you're in shape. my, my, yeah, I'm in, I'm in <laughs> round as a shape. Um, I'm in, yeah, I'm hunting out of my, my M seven, my, um, a four Hawk helium sticks. And I'll set that up in the morning, which is typically a big no, no for me, but I just didn't have time to, to hang it this afternoon. Typically I would hang it in the afternoon and then hunt it in the morning. Um, but I'm going to hang it in the morning as quietly as I can and, uh, hope the fact that I haven't been in there at all, not feeding, not no cameras, no, no, I have nothing. I'm going to a spot where I've seen a lot of deer last year and, um, I'm feeling pretty confident about them coming through this area. Now in the afternoon, I'm hunting a brand new spot. Um, I found it last week. Um, I was looking on a, uh, I was looking on a map on a piece of property that I, I've got access to. And, um, you know, what I love about like Onyx maps or hunt stand is a lot of their maps are taken in the wintertime. So you can see what trees are like the, the, the large growth trees in like a, an aerial shot. And because there's no leaves on them, you can see which ones are most likely oak trees, you know, just by the, how they look from, from, uh, from an aerial perspective. Um, and it's real easy to just drop a couple of pins on those and go check them out go investigate as you're walking through the woods on a new piece of property. Um, and so I found a, a, a big, what looked like an, an oak tree, a, a big, um, white oak tree or, um, or, um, uh, what's the other, what's the other word? Red oak. Cow oak, like cow oak cow. tree. Yeah. Um, it looked like it was next to a big Creek. And in the, in the, in the picture, the Creek was full of water. Well, I got there last week and I was looking around and the Creek's super, super low. Cause it's been very dry and, um, crossing right there at the, at the tree. There's a big sycamore tree. That's just like a perfect candidate for a climber. Sycamores are scary. They're really slippery. Um, and the, and the, they're very hard. I think they're pretty yeah. sure they're very hard trees. So they're slippery and they're hard. And so, you know, your, your sticks will kind of slip on them a little bit. So, but I'm a hunt in a, in a sycamore tree and, um, I've got, you know, that white oak isn't really dropping yet. Um, I saw a bunch of caps on the ground from last year. Nothing's really eaten there yet. I'm mainly hunting it just because it's a crossing. Um, and, uh, it's right next to a pipeline that was just bush hogged last week. Um, and, uh, a lot of deer out there in the evenings on that, uh, on that pipeline. And, um, I'm not a big fan of hunting like on the edge of a pipeline in a deer stand. Um, so I'm going to hunt about a hundred yards in the woods where this crossing is on the Creek. Um, when I was scouting, I got blown at twice from, um, from downwind where, where, um, the other side of the Creek was. So I know that's a good bedding area in there. And, um, We'll see what happens, man. Um, 
that'll be a better stand selection. You know, that that's a better place for me to get. Like, I, I wouldn't, with only being in there one time, I didn't hang a camera. I, I literally, I, I took a picture of the place. I I walked around briefly and then I got out of there and I was like, that's my evening spot as long as I have a south or an east wind. And and we got a southeast wind tomorrow. So um, that's where I'm hunting. That's what I'm doing. Um, I have never killed a deer on opening day. <laughs> so I have zero expectations, right? Um, I have an excellent strategy and more than likely very uh, low percentage chance of, of, of doing anything with it. So... Um, but I'm excited about it, man. It's totally snuck up on me. And it might sound ridiculous considering we have a podcast on hunting, but man, life is, uh, life's busy now. I got a kid on the way. I got a two year old, you know, just, just left my company, started another company working a lot. And, um, you know, I, uh, I'm not, not to the point yet where I can like take time off work and go hunt all the time. You know, um, I, think that was easier for me to do when I was working for a corporation. So, um, anyway, I'm excited about it, man. I think it's going to be a good season. It's going to be hot as hell, but, um, I think, uh, I think it'll be a good, a good opener. Yeah, it's definitely going to be warm. <clears throat> What's your strategy for, for, for to say, you know, tomorrow evening when it's so hot like that, what do you wear? What do you, what do you prepare for when it's so hot? I can tell you mine, what I, what I do, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, like tomorrow afternoon, what I'll do is I'll wear the thinnest pair of hunting pants that I got and a pair of rubber boots, of course. And then I'll wear a, uh, either a, a muscle shirt uh, or just a T-shirt with cut-off sleeves. Uh, I'll look pretty redneck going to my stand. But I'll wear that, and I'll have a, like a leafy suit top that's just – pretty much mesh you know and, and, and it breathes real good so i'll put it in my backpack <clears throat> once i get up in my tree i'll take uh and i kind of you know let yourself calm down and quit sweating take that that uh muscle shirt off wipe yourself down with it you know try to get your armpits and all that back your neck and all that and your hair well, i don't have any hair but if i had hair i would i would i would wipe that <laughs> off good and uh Put it in a in a garbage bag in your backpack, you know, for uh, keeps your scent down, and then take your my leafy suit and put it on just you know naked under, no shirt up under it, because uh, this when it's hot like that, especially a big old boy like me, I sweat, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean that's that's kind of my strategy, you know, uh, kind of wipe myself down once I get up there and, and spray yourself down with whatever kind of you know scent spray you use, but. Uh, uh, to just try to cool yourself down a little bit, but it's hey, trying to, try to go what, slow like, and methodical, you know, to get up there and don't get no big hurry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I give you a product. Um, cause I just did the, I mean, it was nineties in Missouri and I do similar to that. I wear Merino lightweight Merino for breathability, but even when it's that hot, I'm same thing, try to wear something really light and then put on some clothes when you stop sweating. But anyway, there's a, there's a company called take cover scent company and they actually have this roll-on. It's a small uh, airplane size, like I don't know whatever ounce that is. But it's 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 like the old roll-on deodorant. And it's you know I, I found basically when you get up in the stand, you kind of stop sweating. You can roll that around your waist, or like around your waist, around your neck, kind of a roll-on, and then rub down. And 
I don't know. It feels to me like it's a little bit more of a direct approach to your hot spots when it's that hot than just a mist spray. Yeah. You know, I, I, I take a hand towel. I'm going to use that roll on and kind of, kind of get, get that all over my, you know, under my chin, under my armpits, around my waist area where I'm really sweating and then take that hand towel and just really rub that in and try to do as best you can, like you said. But So tomorrow I typically would hunt, I've got this real lightweight, I think I got it at Academy, a Magellan new, new style bottom lamb camo polyester shirt it's like you know like a fi- long sleeve fishing shirt uh technically yeah. yeah um that thing sucks god that thing sucks so yeah. bad it's like wearing <laughs> like when when you sweat out in that thing man it's like wearing a garbage bag dude you, you know? need to wear your you need I, to wear your your merino base I'm i am it's the that's best what, lightweight that's what, shirt that's what, ever that's what i'm gonna do so last year we talked about i'm really freaking stubborn okay and i'm setting my ways but I can be convinced of other things. I'm just not a, I'm not a lemming where you know I'll just do what everybody else does because they're doing it. Like I'll, I, we've talked about this in the past. So if 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 hundred people are running in one direction, I'm gonna be one guy like sneaking out the back, going the other, you know. And um, I just, I, I don't, I don't fall for hype. I, I hate following the crowd. I hate doing things because of a crowd mentality and, and things like that. It's just, it's um, not for me. Well, I have always hunted in like cheap ass cotton clothes as long as it wasn't too cold or rainy, you know? Um, but if I'm just making an average hunt, five ninety nine, any camouflage pattern from Academy cotton shirt with the pockets, good for me, you know? Um, same thing with pants, cotton pants. I still hunting cotton pants, like real tree extra or bottom land or something like that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll mix and match. I have no shame. I don't care. But, um, lock convinced me to check out this stuff from scree S K R E, um, you know, Merino wool and scree didn't invent, invent Merino wool. They've got a lot of other companies that have it, but anyway, it was a great price. Um, he recommended it and, um, I bought some last year and that stuff was fantastic. And the reason I bought it was because I was hunting um, public land and it was one of those days. I don't know. I, let's just say it's like late, late November. It's one of those days where it's 32 degrees in the morning. And when you climb out of the tree stand, it's like 67, you know, it's like, how the hell do you dress for that? You know? Right. And, you know, and so I was, I was hunting a place that across the Creek and I was, I was wearing waders in, or I was wearing hit boots in and so, like, I'm wearing hip boots out, you know. Wearing hip boots in is good at 32 degrees. Wearing hip boots out in almost 70 degrees is, that's a struggle, man. And you start losing weight every step you take and water weight, you know. And so, <laughs> I got, I started getting that horrible wet feeling, you know, where you're wet because you are making yourself wet with sweat. Not because there's a leak in your waders, but because, like, your yeah. legs are sweating. And, you're and leaking. It's, yeah. it's that hot wet and then cold mixture and i was like man this is terrible i called Locke and i was complaining to him right because i had fleece pants on uh or fleece (laughs) fleece leggings on or or, or, uh, thermals or whatever 
I was like, dude, this shit feels terrible. <laughs> I got to do something. He's like, well, have, you know, like a Jehovah's Witness, have I told you about the advantages of merino wool? And I'm like, all right, dude, finally. I'm like, all right, I'll try this stuff out. I got it, man. Godsend. It's awesome. And um, it's like a vacuum cleaner for your skin, for sweat off your skin. It's crazy. But so and it I, dries it so fast. It wicks it away from you. Wicks it, it, it wicks yes. it away. I mean, so like if I came out, like if you asked me what I was wearing tomorrow for opening day, if I came out the gate without all this preface and all this explanation, if I just said, yeah, I'm going to wear a merino wool suit uh, shirt, you'd think I was freaking nuts because it's going to be 95 degrees tomorrow. Yeah. And... <laughs> But the reality is, is that that base layer shirt, very thin. It's not that insulating. Like it's not. It's not like thermals for a twenty-five degree day. It is a base layer to go under thermals. It helps pull that. Yes. That um. That uh. Keeps your skin dry. Away from moisture. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you ask me how you know how I'm going to get in the stand and how I'm going to get all up in the tree and stuff. Well, the answer to that is very slowly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> very slowly um quietly i'm gonna get in a little earlier than i typically would maybe around 3 30 which is pretty early for this time of year considering it doesn't get dark until like 7 30 and um emma wear that shirt and my cotton pants and um i think i'm gonna be good because that i mean that honestly god i'm not trying to plug scree you know they make great stuff but the reality is is if you have a solid tan merino wool shirt and it's not you know, half an inch thick of insulation, you might be off better, might be better off wearing that than like what I was going to wear, which is that nylon fishing shirt material, which that, that, that stuff doesn't breathe. That's no, just the thing. It it's, it's, it's light, yeah. it's lightweight and it doesn't insulate, but it, it, you know, there reaches, you reach a point where it's not letting any of the body heat out. Yeah. And so all of the moisture staying in. And so it's, Very and then the other thing is Merino's antimicrobial too. So, you know, it, I'm not saying that's a huge factor, but it is a, a factor. You don't, you know, it, it, it doesn't stink. It, you know, you, it, it, it kills the microbes supposedly. Correct. Um, in your sweat and it, and it will get, it will get wet, but it dries like 30% faster than any other fabric or something like that. I don't know what all the stats are. Does it, it itch really like is. regular wool? No, Does it itch no, it's, no, it's this, it's, it's, it feels just like ring spun cotton. It's just one really? of the softest fabrics on earth nice let's try some of that i've been hearing good things about it but i just never have tried it well and it's and like and like um kyler said it's you know i mean when you let wear it underneath stuff it does a different kind of job equally as impressive but a different kind of job but you know i mean it's like what you just said that's what people just you hear the word wool and you think well wool wool can't be comfortable and it certainly can't be cool but it is. It's a miracle fabric. Yeah, I got a yeah. I got a wool jacket that's made for bow hunting that I've been having for shoot, I've been I've had that thing twenty years. It's an old original mossy oak camo pattern. <clears throat> and it's a cool looking jacket. But it's got a wool liner in it. And I can't wear it because mm-hmm. it itches my skin too much. If it touches my skin, I'll yeah. you know, I'm fair complected anyway. Yeah. I, I, it, it turns me red and itches me. I, I mean it I, I can't stand it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um man, it's uh so much here, for an hour here we did it again yeah yeah great <laughs> well um look let's let's uh let's crank it down here um 
starting to get late. I still got to get some stuff ready for the hunt in the morning. Um, but, uh, Glenn, you got anything else that you, uh, you want to add before we jump off of here? Man, I, I think I'm good. I want to wish everybody good luck. Yeah. Be safe. That's the biggest thing. Look, the older I get, the more safe conscious I get. I hear somebody every year falling out of a deer stand. Somebody I know normally, mm-hmm. uh, wear your safety belt, uh, you know, be diligent in your safety. Check your stance. If you're going into for the first time for a lock on or a climber for that matter that's been in a tree since last year, check it. Yeah. You know, be very safe. Watch out for wasps. You climb up in them dang stands. I've done it several times. You have a wasp nest under your seat or something. That's how you fall. You know, I mean, they get after you. What you're going to do? So uh, just be safe. Everybody have a safe season. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great message to end on, man. Um, Locke, I hope you have a good day at work tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm probably just going to kind of, I'm going to slip in late. I'm going to have my coffee. I'm going to turn my TV on in my office and live vicariously through the sportsman channel. I hope to be but, texting you about eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Yeah, I'm be waiting on all my buddies hey, Locke, to send me texts. You take off? I need some help dragging. Yeah, well, I can come help you for that. I'll I'll find a, I'll find an hour or two to come help you. I hope to be that. Hey, guy. but I already got a deer. I already got a deer. I yeah, mean, I, I'm not about numbers, but the pressure's off. I don't have to brave 95. I can yeah. wait on a little cool front. Cool. There you go. Cool, cool. All right. Well, uh, All right, good luck, Glenn. I appreciate you joining us again, man. And uh, uh, thank you for having me. I'll, uh, let me know if you do any good. All right. I will. All right, guys. Send you a picture. Do the same. Luck, be safe. Guys. Take care. All right, buddy. See ya. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.